Can you say moralistic, therapeutic, deism five times fast? Welcome to Answers News for Monday, September 26, 2022. Hello, my name is Dr. Georgia Purdom. I'm here with Patricia Engler and Rocket Rob Webb. And today we are going to be talking about the growing crisis of American Christians mixing competing mm -hmm. worldviews together, in addition um, to other news stories. But first, George Barna says most Americans blend beliefs together as customized worldview, a nation in crisis. Now, I think for the three of us when we read this, we weren't exactly shocked, um, but sad um, to think that this is what is happening in um, with evangelical Christians today, that they are really, um, when, I, when I hear a customized worldview, I think syncretism, you know, and syncretism is just a fancy word for customized worldview, taking yeah. all these beliefs from every different place and mixing them together to have the worldview, how we interpret, how we understand the world, because everybody has a worldview, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody starts with something, and that's how they look at the world and interpret everything that they see. For that's sure. Right. Yep. And one thing about um, syncretism is basically if you're picking and choosing what you want to believe from different worldviews, you're kind of making yourself the authority for determining what's true. I think this is true from this worldview and this is true from this worldview. But if you're the one who gets to decide what's true about the universe, you're basically calling yourself God. So other people have pointed out that actually with this kind of idea that everybody can determine their own truth, what we end up with is a society that is polytheistic. In other words, little gods everywhere, which ends up having some really huge problems for legitimate functioning in society, who determines rights, who determines ethics and right and wrong and that sort of thing. Yeah, and like we were saying, secretism, just another fancy word, think of compromise, really. That's more of the simple term here, simply put, compromise. And so that's really, really what, it, what it comes down to. They mentioned a bunch of different worldviews here, you know, like, um, uh, what is it, uh, Eastern mysticism, Marxism, moralistic, therapeutic deism, there it is again, <laughs> uh, nihilism, postmodernism, secular humanism, but really what it boils down to is you really just have two religions, that's it. You either have God or not gods. That's what it comes down to. And if it's not gods, it's elevating, like Patricia was saying, man's opinions, ideas, and thoughts to supersede God and his word. And that's really what it comes down to. And like Georgia was saying, we all have a worldview, and that's really what determines how we see everything around us, how we actually operate, actually how we live our lives. And that's what we say here all the time at the ministry. It's essentially that compromise. You know, you think of evolution millions of years. That's those secular humanistic ideas, it's which, which is really just a religion compromising God's biblical authority in it. And it's really a biblical authority issue. That's really the root cause of all of this. It's, it's, go, it's going back to God's word. Are we taking God at its plainness or are we not? And, you know, one of the things that Barna said, who he's been doing these types of studies for a very long time, and so he's a, a good um, thermometer, so to speak, on the culture and what's going on there among Christians. And he said, you know, this is really a brilliant strategy of the evil one. Mm -hmm. And it is. I, I mean, it is, it is very much so. I've seen this a lot with um, critical race theory. You know, Christians mm -hmm. sadly say, oh, we can adopt certain tenets of CRT. And I'm like, no, you can't. CRT is a worldview, it's a right? Worldview. It's a way of looking at the world through this oppressor-oppressed um, lens and so that is very much problematic. You can't just take certain parts of it because it does, it is a worldview. And so we need to understand that. And, you know, um, Barna goes on to say, you know, we need to, Christians aren't supposed to be um, just mixing all these things. We're supposed to be transformed, right? By God's, by God's word, by the gospel that transforms us and makes us into something new. And I noticed one of the things that he said in here was that, well, a lot of what people pick and choose, it's all about what I want. You know, it's about 
about me, not about what God wants, not about what his word says, but what makes me feel good, what, what I like to do, and all of those things. And I just kept noticing that me or that I term in there when it comes to this customized, quote unquote, worldview. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to that man's word versus God's word. But I think one of my favorite things in this article, though, just to point out here, is they basically call out as parents, you know, the importance of parents raising godly children. Like, like it says, I mean, that's that's our purpose to produce godly offspring, like the Bible says. Um, so, I mean, they, they basically say here, um, we cannot give our children the biblical worldview if we don't have one. So that just should remind us as parents, we need to be in the word daily. We need to be um, studying it so we can actually have that information to then pass on to the next generation because that's what it's all about. It's all about that next generation. Are we gonna be raising them up to stand on God's word unashamedly without compromise from the very first uh, verse of the Bible there. For sure. I did notice that about just some of the recommendations. Read the Bible in the next article. They also say the importance of apologetics, the importance of working together with your churches and families. And those are actually all things that help Christian students get through secular university where you learn all these worldviews as well. So that stood out to me. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things, um, so the Family Research Council, the president, Tony Perkins, he's actually speaking at our upcoming um, Answers for Pastors conference next week. Um, And so we're excited to have him here. But one of the things he said is that a lot of pastors are hesitant to preach the full council of God. And I thought, oh, that is so true. Like we see that, especially when it comes to Genesis, Mm -hmm. um, that preachers aren't preaching um, the history that's in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, because we have to realize that's foundational, right? Mm -hmm. To the gospel itself, to the authority of God's word. Is it true or is it not? When it talks about all these things. So if you don't have that foundation, then you don't have the God, then the gospel can't be rooted in that, right? And so it's rooted in something else. And then that becomes very, very problematic. And so I think that is definitely, you know, calling parents to this task, calling pastors to this task. We all have a role in teaching other people um, these things and helping them understand that. And and just to kind of highlight this, and it goes along with this particular article, um, there was a, uh, it's called the State of Theology, and by, I I won't pronounce this right, how do you pronounce the ministry? Ligonier. 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 Okay, I know I'd pronounce it wrong probably. Um, So anyway, so they did a survey of like U.S. adults in general, but then also U.S. evangelicals. And so um, I'm only going to show you the results for the U.S. evangelicals because that's the part that we kind of want to hone in on. And something we might want to know about this study, though, as far as numbers go, did you want to? Oh, sure, yes. So they only were able to look at about 700 evangelicals. So usually for a a study to be very statistically meaningful and representative of the whole population you're looking at, you want to have, like, thousands. So it is a small sample size, so just be aware of that. But it's still concerning within the amount that they were looking at. Right. So this first one, and I'll read it because I, you know, so in case you can't see it, but it says everyone, okay, so U.S. evangelicals, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% agree. It goes back to Genesis, right? Rejecting Genesis, rejecting original sin. What are you left with? Wow. Yeah, are yeah. they not reading Romans? I'm just thinking like, yeah. you know, everyone right. has, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, that Romans 3, I mean, you can't baby. get any more clear than that, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains hopeful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% agree with that. So a quarter of Christians think the Bible is not literally true, which is why they have syncretism. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't just like people who call themselves Christians for the fun of it. They defined evangelicals as people who believe the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe, but a quarter say that they don't think it's (laughs) true. right. So they're making themselves the authority for determining Mm -hmm. the Bible. Mm Yeah, exactly. Um, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Hmm, 48% agree that God is not immutable. 
Yeah, so like, so just based on this article and the last one, like I was saying, it really boils down to just two religions. That's essentially what this whole book series is all about. It comes down to all the different world religions and cults. Uh, Bodhi Hodge, I think Roger Patterson were the general editors on it. We have a few different volumes on here, but really what it comes down to is, is it gods or not gods? And that's what it comes down to. Is it coming from God's word, or is it coming from the mind of man in some way, shape, or form? So you think about all the Eastern mysticism religions out there, all the different, um, you name it. I mean, it basically, uh, even some of the cults, it's, it's coming out of that humanistic kind of world frame, uh, framework, worldview that's coming down to it. So if you guys want to check it out, really good resource here if you guys want to learn more about that and what it comes down to on the different religions and cults and how that looks. All right, now this one kind of amazed me. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of yeah. U.S. evangelicals agree yeah. that Jesus is not God. Yeah. Read that again. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Okay, so the 43% that agree, guess what? They're not Christians then. If Jesus is not God, yeah. then you cannot be a Christian. They're worshiping an idol at that point. That just, yeah. oh. Yeah, yeah I was having such a great day until I read this. I was like, it just, I went into like this depressed kind of state. I'm like, oh no, why? It is why? concerning. But, but it, I just, I just want to really quickly just point out to you guys. So essentially what they mean by evangelical, they say, number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. Number two, it is very important for them personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. Uh, number three, it is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of sin. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So they had to meet all four of these criteria to, to become, you know, quote unquote evangelical. And it just blows my mind. Like, okay, well, you say these things, but yet you're answering these questions completely contradictory. Like we were just talking about the worship of mm -hmm. all these other religions. Well, is Jesus the only way, like he says in John 14, 6, or is he not? That's what it comes down to. And, um, and even just the open theism, um, they, they also interviewed some of the U.S. adults as well, which I thought was interesting because it kind of shows how these evangelicals kind of match up to the U.S. adult general population. And the open theism... 51% agreed for the U.S. adults, 48% agreed for the evangelicals. So you see almost the exact same in terms of what the culture believes and what evangelical believes. So it kind of shows that the culture has been really influencing heavily that, that, that church over the last generation or so. And, and really, it, it just comes down to Genesis. I think there's a compromise of Genesis because Genesis, directly or indirectly, every other doctrine is built on Genesis. So when you compromise Genesis, everything else falls. If you yeah. can really see from going from like the lack of belief in original sin, and if you don't yeah. believe the bad news, you don't have a foundation for that, you don't mm -hmm. have a foundation for the good news in Jesus. Exactly. And if churches aren't actually teaching the Bible and teaching you how to read the Bible, right. you're not gonna be able to recognize these, these heresies as well if you're just getting kind of the feel good, live your best mm -hmm. life kind mm -hmm. of teaching. That's, that's not actually Christianity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's why we're so critical on going back to the foundation, going back to Genesis. We need to have that proper foundation and we'll have an answer for all of these other questions 
questions and because these are just really symptoms of that root cause of the lack of biblical authority is mm -hmm. what it comes and down to. And you see this spilling over, you know, into morality. Um, so the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 28% agree with that. Okay. And gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% of Christians agree with that. So we just see it. But at the same time, what I thought was interesting was 94% think sex outside traditional marriage is a sin and abortion is a sin, 91%. So it's this very much a contradiction right, yeah. in their beliefs, just like even with how they define evangelical versus what they believe about Jesus just seems very contradictory. And I think it all, it all boils down to what you know, Barna was saying was that people are just very syncretic. They're just taking a mix of these things, even though if you look at them all together, <laughs> Their worldview is completely inconsistent and arbitrary and doesn't work, um, but that, that's just how they're viewing it, you know? And that is why we need to know what we believe and why we believe right. it, and we need to know that so we can pass it on to the next generation, right? That is really, really That's important. why I love at the very end, the conclusion, it says we need to be engaged in apologetics. We need to be equipping believers with those answers. That's right. And we have, and, um, we have a great audience, too, joining us today here live at the Creation Museum. So give yourself a big round of applause. Let's hear you. Come on. Let's hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a that's a NASCAR clap. These people, they know they know what they're talking about. It's not a golf clap okay. right there. Mammals lived alongside some of the earliest dinosaurs, controversial study claims. Now, when I read this, I think, of course, mammals lived along dinosaurs because mm -hmm. mammals were created on the same day as the dinosaurs. And one of the most controversial images in the entire Creation Museum is this one. Mm -hmm. And I might say, why? <laughs> because there's a dinosaur with a person. Right, and so um, so people because they don't again they think dinosaurs died out millions of years before people came into existence. But again, we know according to God's word, the dinosaurs were created actually on the same day as human beings. Um, so so again, what this what this article though is going to talk about is they're now replacing what they thought was the earliest mammalian ancestor, maybe possibly. Yeah. with a different mammalian yeah. ancestor. Yeah, a lot of possible, a lot of <laughs> if, you know, kind of statements all the way through and through this article. And it's really, it's, it's that surprise for the evolutionary worldview because it's just pushing that whole timeline back, right? Um, whereas it's expected in, in the biblical worldview. We would expect mammals and dinosaurs to be found together because they were both created on day six, but both the dinosaur can kind and all the land animals were made on day six. And so, you know, just as, as you're going through this, just watch out for all the storytelling, make sure you separate the facts from the fiction. There's a lot of storytelling in this. I mean, just from the very first uh, sentence here, I just wrote once upon a time, the earliest known <laughs> mammal was a tiny shrewd like animal that lived alongside the first dinosaurs 225 million years ago. Yeah. Pushing back the appearance of mammals, about 20 million. I mean, and, and just they're always changing that story again. We, we always say it every week. It's like, oh, another article. They're changing their evolutionary story again because it's based on the shifting sands of man's opinion rather than the foundation like God's word that never changes from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, yeah, let's, let, let's always remember to stand on that. And of course, we're always seeing that resistance to that changing them because it's contradicting their beliefs, you know, their, their secular humanistic um, beliefs that they, that they go back to, you know, they, they reject God 
from, from the very beginning. So they have these naturalistic assumptions. So anything that they see in the evidence, you know, that contradicts their worldview, they're going to reject. So I brought up my glasses here. I wanted to do it for the last one, but I didn't get a chance to. So imagine like glasses, you know, you're, you're seeing the world through certain glasses. That's the same way with the biblical worldview, the naturalistic worldview, you know. So we have to make sure that we're viewing reality using the proper glasses. Are we viewing it using God's word or are we viewing it using man's word? I don't actually wear glasses. These are technically my blue light blocking glasses, but uh, I decided to come up here and just show you as a little, little prop here. And the glasses that we use affect our expectations, right? So if you expect that there's this age of the dinosaurs after which there were mammals, when you take your shovel out to those rock layers, you're not going to be looking for mammals necessarily. But actually, I have like a little list from one of, one of the dinosaur talks we give here, how there is a 25, uh, 125 million year old, they suppose, squirrel, 120 million year old platypus that looks exactly like modern platypuses, go figure, yeah. uh, 71 million year old mole, 130 million year old, something like a honey badger that actually had dinosaur bones in its stomach. So <laughs> they did clearly live alongside dinosaurs, and this is yeah. what would be another example of that. But evolutionists are actually quite hesitant to call this a mammal. They're getting the idea that, it's from, that it is a mammal from looking at the fossil has two sets of teeth. And actually, these are very common fossils, it was saying, that Brazil universities have so many of them, they really didn't care that these researchers were chopping up the jaws and like destroying the fossils, because they're like, we have these all the time. We have a whole so this wasn't even them, yeah. a new discovery. This was a known <laughs> creature that now they're like, oh, that yeah. looks a lot like a mammal. But not even all evolutionists agree about that. Right, and they're yeah, not even sure. So because that. they don't want to call it a mammal, <laughs> because of being 20 million years before they thought mammals were around, um, they're like, well, maybe it's a mammalian form or a mammalian morph or a, not quite a mammal, though. You know, yeah, we yeah. got to call it yeah, something can't, else. Can't and do it's that. just, yeah. oh my goodness, like trying to get around all this terminology to try to explain mm -hmm. what it is because yeah. they don't, because again, it has a defining feature of having two sets of teeth. Like, all mammals do, basically. Right. Reptiles yeah. don't, okay? And so, but we don't want to call it a mammal because it, it upsets our evolutionary worldview. It doesn't fit with what we think happened. And so they're willing to even go out of their way to say it's something else, kind of like what they do with dinosaurs and birds, okay? <laughs> so they say, well, they even say feathers were once thought to be a defining feature of birds. Now we know that feathers arose much earlier and are common in many dinosaurs. No, 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 no. They just okay. said it to ruffle our feathers, I no. think. And we have, a, yeah, we have <laughs> a lot of articles on our website that talk about this. One recently that was published by Dr. Gabriella Haynes, who is a paleontologist who has studied this in detail, in depth, um, dinosaurs and birds clothing. Um, and she gives a great, um, a great re refutation of the feathers on dinosaurs. And she's got some papers coming up in Answers Research Journal. One has been published already on Archaeopteryx um, and many others really looking at this in depth and saying, no, that these are not legitimate feathers that are on the dinosaurs. But yet again, they, these kind of ideas come because they're not starting with God's word. They're starting with an evolutionary worldview that has to explain how these things came into existence and what their evolutionary trail, so to speak, looks like. Yeah, don't let the evidence get in the way here. So, Okay. Oh, I like the, I like the title of this next one. Yeah, this Rare is good. fossilized vomit discovered in Utah's Jurassic salad bar. Okay, that's a, that's a cool title. Like whoever came up with that did yeah, a really good yeah. job. Um, so they have actually found um, fossilized vomit. Now I've never, this is a first, I haven't actually heard of this before, but I've heard of fossilized poop, right? And so they come up with really cool names for all of these things so they don't have to use those terms. So fossilized poop, if you don't know, is called a cop, Coprolite, and fossilized vomit, it turns out, is called regurgitolite. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Or bromelite. Yeah. I like regurgitolite better. It's fun um, to say. But anyway, yeah. so what they found is what they believe to be fossilized vomit um, in a place where they normally don't find animal bones. Um, and that's why they call it Jurassic salad bar because normally they find plants and things there. They don't yeah. find animal bones. And so they think something ate these little animals and then puked them up and they find them. Yeah, they, they think it was a salamander and the frog. So, I mean, the story is just really riveting. You know, it just... Um, no, I'm sorry. It just it just gets worse. Bodie's not here, oh, so he's got to do the I just, just couldn't stomach it, you know, here with the vomit. I did think, on a slightly more serious note, I'm sorry, like that it was interesting that they found so much soft tissue in it, yeah. and like especially, yeah. um, you wouldn't expect you wouldn't expect anything that's like a little squishy body with soft tissue to last very long, waiting to be fossilized. But you especially wouldn't expect it to wait that long to be fossilized if it's sitting in digestive enzymes yeah. decaying. So whatever this was, it had to be a rapid burial. So I don't right. know, what yeah. do you think would cause? Which would, yeah, I mean, does that ring burial. a bell to you from, uh, familiar, from, from familiar, something? Yeah. Yeah. They get pretty yeah. compelling evidence, I think, that, or, you know, compelling ideas that this is actually fossilized vomit. Because like, I went on a dinosaur dig recently and was digging up for dinosaur bone, which isn't as easy as it looks like in the movies, just saying. Um, but to even be able to recognize the difference between a rock um, and <laughs> and a dinosaur bone mm -hmm. um, can be challenging. So I give them credit um, for being able to do that. Obviously, they're much more skilled at this than I am. Um, but I thought they gave some really good evidence. The only difference is, like we were saying, this isn't millions of years old, right? We know the time frame is totally different. Mm -hmm. And if they're finding soft tissue, this was buried quickly That's and right. deeply and can't be millions of years old, or yep. you wouldn't find the soft tissue. They don't yeah. even talk. They act, They actually give it like an afterthought. Oh, yeah, and we found some soft tissue. Yeah, there. yeah. they just kind of like side note that, you know, by the way, I'm like, wait. Wait a minute, yes, hold yeah. the phone here. Right. Soft tissue? Hold on a second. I mean, that's why it comes down to, it's, it's all about the classes, right? It's all about the worldview. And it comes down to the evidence. It's like, doesn't matter how much evidence is really there. It comes down to how are we actually interpreting it. So even with something like that, they're going to completely reinterpret it based on the glasses that they're wearing there. Mm -hmm. All right, so another cool fossil find, the oldest 3D heart from our vertebrate ancestors has been discovered. Okay, it might be the oldest 3D heart, or it's, you know, relatively speaking, but it's not from our vertebrate ancestors. So this was a placoderm and uh, they actually found it, like it's in three dimensions. So it's not like a fossil that's been flattened or squished or mm -hmm. you know laid there for millions of years and been slowly covered and decayed. It's in its full 3D form, which again, you would expect if it had been buried in a flood just a few thousand years ago, very quickly and very deeply. Mm -hmm. That's how you can explain that being there. Yeah, for sure. A lot of storytelling in this one as well. Yep. Um, but interestingly, if you kind of get rid of the total storytelling part, what you can see actually makes a lot of sense from a biblical worldview. Yeah, a lot for of instance. great research in here. Yeah. yeah, right. So if you ignore the part about like evolution taking a great leap forward in the body plan, saying it didn't take long for evolution to land on this basic body plan. I mean, that is, it's called a reification fallacy, fallacy, where you yeah. say that something that's um, abstract can do something concrete. So evolution, for instance, it can't actually try to form things itself. It doesn't have a Mind. Have a mind. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. So, um, but seeing complexity in the lower down layers of the fossil record would make sense from a biblical perspective. You wouldn't, ha you wouldn't expect to see like a partially formed um, set of internal organs. So this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And it's saying a great deal of complexity occurred right at the beginning of our evolutionary history. Ignore the evolutionary history part. Yeah. And again, so lots of complicated things happening together, which fits a biblical worldview really well, and you don't actually need all the extra storytelling. That was a full-hearted effort there. <laughs> <laughs>
that really uh, is the heart of the problem you here. You, is, did, uh, you did miss a beat there, did you? <laughs> didn't miss oh, you're on fire today. Oh, this is all lighthearted. It's, it's all fishy, too. It's all just very fishy. I'm but, staying um, out of this. Really, that's, that's the heart of the problem here is their wrong starting point. That's what it comes down to. Because a lot, of, every single one of these articles, again, um, they're just assumption upon assumption upon assumption. They've already rejected God's word. So they have that naturalistic assumption that all there is is nature. You know, you can't explain anything else other than that through the physical, natural laws that exist in our universe, and they have to interpret it in that way. So they come up with all these stories to then try to reject the clear evidence that's all around us. I mean, it just blows my mind when, when, you, when you see these kind of things, like 380 million-year-old uh, organs here and stomach lining. It's like, they, they call it beautifully preserved and over millions and millions of years, slow and gradual and and they even talk about, um, it's kind of funny, towards the end of the article, they say, though it seems counterintuitive, fish were the first animals to evolve lungs, along yeah. with their legs, to crawl up on land, to become the animal, mammals and things like that that we have today. You know, again, it, it, like I say, it's a bunch of storytelling, and, it's, and, you know, with these placoderm fossils, they didn't find any lungs, and so they're like, oh, well, then that must have been after, you know, our ancestors um, evolved from the placoderms, and it's like, no. Um, pachyderms are fish, and fish don't need lungs, you know, and, and God designed them that way, and that's just how they are. And so, anyways, yeah, you do see a lot of that storytelling in here, but yeah. it is cool that we're finding these things. These are great finds. There's nothing wrong with the find itself. It's just you have to look at it through that biblical worldview and say it's really not that old. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with our ancestry, and it's something that we find as well-preserved as we do because of the flood conditions. Yeah, that's right. All right, Virginia orders school to stop hiding trans students' health information from their parents. Okay, so this has to do with the Virginia election that happened, I believe it was last year, um, when Glenn Youngkin was elected as governor in place of the um, incumbent um, Terry McAuliffe uh, because McAuliffe had said basically uh, that the, the schools should have the rights to determine whether uh, a student can transition to a different gender which they really can't, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, he has instituted things now, which this is so encouraging, and we wish every governor in the U.S. would do this, but to, to yeah. tell the school districts they have to stop allowing students to identify as their opposite, opposite sex without legal documents and to keep parents informed about their child's psychological development. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's called parental rights, duh. you know, <laughs> absolutely. So we're glad yeah. to see this. This is definitely a positive thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this should just be a reminder, too, that schools are not neutral, just parents beware. You know, this isn't just in Virginia. This is in states all across the country. They're trying to implement these kind of things. So just continue, I would say just continue to pray for this governor, you know, that he continues to stand on these biblical concepts, that he stays strong against all the secular attacks that are going against him right now because he's getting attacked all over the place through and through because of this stance that he's taking. Um, and, you know, even at the end here, all, all of the other people, they're, they're, they're basically criticizing him by saying, you know, this directive will worsen suicide and self-harm rates against uh, LGBT students. And that just reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, 6, which says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So really, if we want to be loving to these LGBT students here, we need to not be deceiving them with this harmful lie. We need to be pointing them to the truth. Like it says in the Bible that such were some of you, like the, like, like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians as well. Um, such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You become a new creation in Christ. So um, even if whether or not they were born that way, they need to be born again, yeah. right? They need to be born again into that new creation to become the old is gone, the new has come. And that's really the most loving thing that we can do with these students.
It's worth pointing out too, along those lines, just the language of um, what they were saying about it being a human rights issue. When we talk about things like human rights, we need to ask, okay, <laughs> what do we, what the right to do what basically, the freedom to do what, where do these rights come from? Is it really a right? How do we know that? What standard are we using? What's the foundation for those rights? Actually, because if you think about it, within a secular worldview, you don't have a foundation for human rights. Humans are the same as animals. And also, if you're taking God out of the picture, you only want to deal with material stuff you can see rights shouldn't exist in a material world they're an immaterial concept so you just want to talk about okay so what are the rights we're talking about in this case they're saying well parents have rights to know what their kids are doing but other people want to say that kids have rights to um, identify however they want based on their feelings basically right. so which of those are actually rights and how do we go from there and uh, the bible does give us a foundation for answering those questions from a solid philosophical base without contradiction that's right and one of the things too i mean this does come i mean i speaking as a woman you know i i think about this from a safety standpoint for these girls i have a daughter yeah. i don't want her walking into a locker room or a restroom where there's potentially males in there. I mean, that is just downright um, scary and, yeah. and, and very unsafe. And you think about this deals with, you know, the whole idea of female athletes, like what defines a female? What is a woman? Um, you know, all of those things. And so they're, they're, they're what we need to be concerned with. And of course, it's interesting because the places like ACLU will say, oh, this is wrong. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is going to worsen suicide and self-harm rates in LGBT students. So this is what they always come back with. Um, it's a bullying tactic is what it really is. Um, I just recently read a book by Laura Perry, who is a, a woman who transitioned to being a man and became a Christian and transitioned back to being a woman. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful account of her, of her life. But one of the things that she talks about is, no, being, being transgender, trying to be something that God did not design you to be, that is what leads to suicide. Mm -hmm. That is what leads to self-harm. Um, and that is what leads to depression and all of these things. Um, and so it, we, we need to understand that, right? We need to help people that are, there are people that legitimately suffer with this. I have no, I have no doubt about that, but um, they don't need the, they need assistance. Parents need to help them. They need to know what's going on in their student's life. Um, they need to be very involved with these, their schools and understand this and get them the help that they need, right? That, that's important within the context of the church, within um, the context of God's word. Um, being able to transform them, right? Truly transform them, Amen. truly help them in dealing with these issues. All right, last but not least, scientists created living, it's good it's in quotes. Yeah, they it put really that. Living is. synthetic cells by harvesting bacteria for parts. Okay, right there. Right there, as soon as you read the title, I should tell you, okay, these are not living things that people have created. These are things they have designed by taking designs from other living things, right? right. That's really what mm -hmm. they've done. Patricia yeah. loves talking about synthetic <laughs> cells. So I'm yeah. let her talk about so it. they basically like took a bunch of bacteria and then got them to like literally spill their guts into some droplets and then they called the droplets cells. So they're like, look at what's going on in these these cells. It's like things that bacteria do. Yeah, because you stole the parts yeah. from them. It'd where be like the, if you take yeah, right, right. It'd be like if you took a motor out of a car and then put it in something and was like, it runs. Yeah, yeah. it's I like it's not actually new. it's actually, not actually no, a discovery. Just, yeah. yeah, totally. So that was that was kind of the gist of what was happening. But I don't know if you wanted to. No, I just I, I think my favorite part of this article when they basically talk about the fact that even the simplest organisms rely on countless biochemical operations involving mind bending, bending, bendingly, hard for me to say, 
uh, complex machinery to grow and replicate. I mean, just think about, I mean, it's not that simple, right? I mean, it, we're, we were talking about like whole like machines and me being an engineer, I just, I just love that. Like, of, of course God would design it that way. You know, him being the master designer and just, just blows my mind, you know, the dumb luck of evolution. How do people still hold on to that kind of, kind of belief system after seeing that, you know, yeah. it's like, just reminds me of Romans 1. That that's why you can only clear. make synthetic mm -hmm. cells by borrowing stuff that's already been designed. <laughs> by borrowing right. God's yeah. good design yeah. for yeah. that because we just can't do it. It's so complex. And yeah, it takes so complex, a huge yeah. team of intelligent researchers to like plagiarize <laughs> other cells yeah. to prove that like you can't evolve life right. from non-life. Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't yeah. work. But yeah, yeah, still yeah. required intelligence yeah, to do the whole yeah. thing. Okay, um, just to finish up here, so Patricia, why don't you talk a little bit about your book? Because oh, sure. this is another great resource. Yep. I highly recommend this for high school students, college students, parents. Um, you need to read this book. Right, so it's called Prepare to Thrive, a Survival Guide for Christian Students. And whether you're going to a secular university or, unfortunately, even Christian, <laughs> even Christian universities, um, so many of them are compromised, like what we saw with the state of theology studies. A lot of people believe and teach wrong things about the Bible. Um, so this is a book to help you, <laughs> to help you really have a solid foundation for going in and dealing with the things you're going to hear. Keep your strong biblical worldview foundations, and also have a good Christian support network around you. Have critical thinking skills to think through the things you're going to be hearing. And these are the foundations, like what we said, that um, these researchers are recommending for people just to navigate culture where we have all the syncretism. So it's not just for students or pastors or parents or mentors. It's really for all Christians to have the foundations they need to get through this culture that we're in and actually impact it for Jesus from the foundation of God's word. So that's a practical resource for that. All right, oh. so you don't have a customized <laughs> worldview. <laughs> yeah. So you develop a true biblical that's worldview. Right. And also to help you um, with that, we have, like I mentioned this earlier, our annual Pastors and Christian Leaders Conference, which just isn't for pastors and Christian leaders. Anyone is welcome to come. There's still time to sign up and come to this great conference next week. I am super excited about it. I love the lineup of speakers at this. Um, and so uh, you'll, wanna, you'll wanna join us for that, A Culture and a Church in Crisis, October 4th through the 6th. And also coming up, one of my favorite conferences of the year, because I get to direct it, um, <laughs> is um, Abide um, Answers for Women uh, conference. We have one of these every year. Next year's is going to be on the importance of developing a theology of suffering um, because we need to do that as Christians because if you you see what's coming up in the world and all these things that are coming against us and so we need to be able to know um, how to suffer and how to suffer well, so to speak, in that. So we have another great lineup of speakers. Um, Ali Bestucki, um, she's known as a conservative millennial. She has an amazing podcast and uh, so I'm really excited to have her here. Costi Hinn, uh, the nephew of Benny Hinn, um, but he is not, this Costi is not a health and wealth yeah. preacher. Um, he Good. has come out of that. He Good preaches the true there. gospel. Yep. And so he's going to be talking about that and um, many other speakers. So I encourage you to join us. Go to answersforwomen.org to register for that. We are officially out of time. So we'll see you next week on Answers News. Bye. God bless.